0: Hello, friends, and welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. My name is Scott Cowan, and I'm the host of the show. Each episode, I have a conversation with an interesting guest who is living in or from Washington State. These are casual conversations with real and interesting people. I think you're going to like the show. So let's jump right in with today's guest. Well, Welcome back to this episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast. I'm uh, having a conversation today with Becky Burkhart. Becky is the park ranger. I don't know if that's the official title. You'll correct me in a minute, but I'll call you the park ranger uh, for the, um, the Manhattan project national historical park, which there's three locations. And since this is a Washington state show, we don't care about the other two, but they're actually very important to our story. Um, So Becky, welcome. I'm going to normally I let people introduce themselves, but I'm going to prompt you with some questions today. And we're going to get, get the background out of you. How did you end up at, I'll call it Hanford, but how did you end up at this park?
1: Um, well, see, I applied for the job, so that's always was a good place to start. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's how I wound up here is I moved up here for the position, but I've been with the National Park Service for about 20 years. Okay. And um, the great thing about the National Park Service is you get to travel or move mm-hmm. and uh, learn a lot about our country, the geology, the plants, the animals, and the history. And so I moved up from New Mexico. I was at White Sands National Park for about eight years. And then I saw this opportunity uh, for Manhattan Project National Historical Park in Washington State, and I said, that looks really interesting. Put it in my resume, and they thought I was the best candidate and gave me the job.
0: All right. So when you were a kid, did you think you wanted to be a park ranger? How How does one... I've interviewed a couple of other park rangers. So I always find this interesting how people end up in their careers. So how did you, when you were a kid, what did you want to do? What's those memories of like, Oh, I want to be this.
1: I really, it's funny. I did not, we did, I did not grow up camping. I didn't grow up doing any of the traditional things that would typically lead you into this career. Um, I always enjoyed the, the outdoors. I terrorized the neighborhood on my bike. And, you know, um, so I had a bike and I ran, uh, rode it all over the place. Okay. I grew up in Yuma, Arizona, and so loved exploring the desert. My grandparents had a house, uh, out in the desert. So that was my playground playing with the cactus and, and snakes and tarantulas and all sorts of fun things that are in the desert. Um, some things are scary. Some things are fun to poke until they're scary, uh, but it was, uh, you know, just enjoyed being outdoors, um, but then, I uh, so, after I say so I went to college, got a degree in crop science and agricultural education, and then I decided I wanted to join the Peace Corps. So I uh, lived in Ecuador, South America for two and a half years as a Peace Corps volunteer.
0: Okay. And
1: there, I one of my Peace Corps colleagues, and now very close friend, she was a wilderness ranger with the Forest Service. And that was my first real exposure to Uh, a career in natural resources. So um, getting to know Jen, we had a lot of fun outdoor adventures. When I was in college, I started getting exposed to hiking and camping and rock climbing. And I Uh thought that was a lot of great fun. So that interest started budding when I was in college. And then with my friend, Jen, she really taught me a lot about careers in working with public land management agencies. So that kind of planted the seeds So when I came back to the United States, I went back to a job I had in college during the summer. So it was just a place to land because I had no car, no money. I was like, okay, I got to figure something out now. And I knew that was a temporary seasonal job. And then I had gone up to a state park with a friend just as a day trip. And they had a sign up that said wanted park aid. I was like, well, what's a park aid? It was kind of a slow day. And so I asked the the lady in the visitor center just to make some conversation. Mm -hmm. And I said, so what's a park aid? And she didn't answer my question. She turned around, got on the radio and said, we have somebody interested in the park aid position. And I'm looking around. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm literally only other person in this building. Like what I just asked, like a conversation question. So, okay, I'm kind of stuck now. <laughs> and so the ranger pulls up and he was a law enforcement ranger. So he has his duty belt and his big hat and his, the, the ranger car. And I was like, what the heck? And so he said, I understand you're interested in the park aid position. I was like, at this point, sure. whatever. whatever. Um, <laughs> So I signaled over to my friend, like, come on, we're going to go talk to the ranger. He's like, what, what did you do? And I'm like, just get in the car with the ranger. So we went to the ranger's office and then he started telling me what the job was. And he said, well, you talk to people, you you share the history of this place, you collect some fees. I'm like, well, that sounds pretty fun. And I really don't have a job at this point because I just got back from Peace Corps trying to figure things out. So once he started explaining the job, I was like, that sounds kind of fun. So then I started selling myself like, hey, you know, I'm Becky. I'm a Peace Corps, return Peace Corps volunteer. And then he said, "Okay, you're hired. I'm like, what? Uh, He said, well, turn in your resume and go through all that. So I turned in my resume. Short answer is I was working for California State Parks seven days later and that was a seasonal job but I fell in love like hey I like this park ranger thing like, this is kind of fun so then I started looking in to get a permanent job with with California State Parks but that takes a while you have to there's a long interview process and because it they <sighs> They make all of their rangers are law enforcement rangers. You have uh, physical fitness tests you have to take. So it's about a year long process to go through. So in the interim, I, um, I worked at Bodie State Historic Park for the summer at Ono Nuevo State Reserve on the coast of California where the elephant seals, it's an elephant seal rookery, worked there in the summer and the winter time. So it was a good gig, got to go back and forth as I worked through the application process. Well, that was the early 2000s. Um, Enron kind of caused a little bit of problem when Enron collapsed. The state of California was heavily invested in Enron. It caused a hiring freeze. And so as I'm trying to work through this application process to apply to be a park ranger, there were some bumps in the road. So in that process, I decided to check out national parks and, you know, kind of see what other options were out there and go to grad school because my friend from Peace Corps, was going to grad school at the University of Idaho. and was also encouraging me like, hey, this is a great program, Becky, especially if you wanna get more into interpretations and communication. Um, So ultimately I got a summer job at Mesa Verde National Park and got accepted to the University of Idaho in their master's program in environmental communication. And so I did that. I loved working at Mesa Verde. It was super awesome. Like, yeah, I like this park ranger thing. I'm less interested in the law, law enforcement aspect and definitely more interested in the education communication. Right. So I went to grad school, learned more about um, the profession and the, the, this why we do this kind of thing. And then I wound up getting a job at Grand Teton National Park. Was there for four years. And then I went to Chami National Memorial in El Paso, Texas, right on the border with Mexico. Mm-hmm. was there for about a year and a half, and then at White Sands National Park, and then here at Hanford. So, oh, at Hanford. okay. So that's what happened. I asked a question. All
0: because 20... you tried to strike up a conversation. <laughs> so,
1: you never know. I had, oh, yeah, I was just trying to kill some time. And uh, here I am 20 some odd years later.
0: <laughs> you just never know, do you? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, well, welcome, welcome to Washington State. So you, you're kind, you were kind of since you went to uh, the university, university of Idaho. Is that in?
1: What? It's in Moscow. It's a pretty well, close. Is, that's right. I should,
0: yeah, I should really know that. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's close enough to Washington that I should know that. I mean, that's, that's, that's right.
1: It's, it's like five miles, <laughs> if that. Right. And <laughs> yeah.
0: and so you're you're you just didn't move up here blindly. You were kind of aware of the the region and and, and all of that. So okay. Mm-hmm. How long is this the 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 park? How long is it? Because I'm not—I wasn't aware of this until we were introduced. I, I wasn't aware that there was a, a national park there. Um. So how long is? and I'm hoping you're going to say, "Oh, it's brand new, Scott," because you shouldn't have known. But it's, you're probably going to go <laughs> 40 years, and I'll be looking silly. But how long has the park been in it open?
1: I well, it was established back in 1948. <sighs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is a new park, uh, especially in terms of, you know, new for us, you know, Mount Rainier has been around for over a hundred years. Manhattan Project National Historical Park was established in, with the passage of the 2015 National Defense Authorization Act. Okay. So it passed in 2014, but it wasn't officially established until November of 2015, okay. and And it's a really unique park, we'll probably get this in a little bit later, but so it's been around since 2015. But the park service didn't have any staff up here at Hanford until late 2017. I'm the first park ranger that here at Hanford so I've been here five and a half years uh, there, we have a, currently a staff of two Ooh. so we're a huge staff here at Hanford the park staff we have more across the country but here at Hanford so a pretty small staff presence but we like to say we're a small but mighty team so
0: if somebody comes up and strikes up a conversation with you they may be recruited into the park service
1: <laughs> yeah I figured out that's a great recruiting tool you start <laughs> talking to me and I'm like hey here's a job application
0: <laughs> so so it is a new a new a new park so I, I don't feel quite as silly now this park is is also in three locations
1: it is yes so when um kind of a little bit of the backstory of how the park got established is there there was a movement and it this has been in in progress for decades to try to get a park established around the manhattan to share the history of the manhattan project Mm. so originally it was going to be oak ridge and los alamos oak ridge produced the enriched uranium for the little boy bomb and then it was also the project's headquarters. Mm-hmm. Los Alamos is where they assembled the weapons. Uh, so that, that's where a huge amount of, of scientific research was happening as, in developing the weapons. And then as the conversation expanded to establish the park, Hanford, the Tri-Cities community said, well, you can't tell the Manhattan Project story without also sharing Hanford's role because Hanford produced the plutonium for the Fat Man bomb. Mm-hmm. So then the conversation expanded, and that was like in the mid 2000s. The conversation expanded to include all three sites. So eventually the momentum moved forward. And by 2014, there was enough momentum to include um, to get the park established. And that was a lot of work on the congressional des- delegation from Washington state. Mm-hmm. Doc Hastings was really heavily involved in that, as well as Senators Marie and Cantwell. So it's a little bit of the genesis of the park, trying to pull it all together. So the park is Hanford, Washington, aka Tri-Cities, Los Alamos, New Mexico, and Oak Ridge, Tennessee. I, we have colleagues across the country. And then the superintendent is based out of Denver, Colorado. So all of us are one park. Mm-hmm. So we like to say one park, three sites, countless stories.
0: Okay. So and then and then okay, so you open the park and then COVID hits and you immediately close the park. So it's it...
1: Yeah, well that that's actually a really interesting case there. So we're like if we you said we're spread out across the country. This story isn't just Hanford, it isn't just Los Alamos. Like mm-hmm. you can't have you couldn't have an atomic weapon without Los Alamos, Hanford and Oak Ridge for sure. But there was also about 20 other primary sites that were heavily involved, whether they were uranium processing facilities or research institutes like UC Berkeley, University of Chicago. So although those three sites, Hanford, Los Alamos, Oak Ridge, those were the primary centers of operation. It was these other 20 places or more. There was more places, and that's just the United States. There were places in Canada that were refining the ore. And then the majority of the uranium for the project actually came from the Democratic uh, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, which was the Belgian Congo at the time during World War II. That's where the ore was coming from. And then, of course, the weapons final assembly was in Tinian and then they were dropped on Japan. So this is a global story. Mm -hmm. And so uh, your your comment about COVID is really COVID, we were kind of stepping in the direction of using technology to help share the story because we're spread across the country, but the story is a national story and it's a global story. And to be able to provide opportunities for visitors to learn about and to engage with this history, leaning into digital platforms is really important. Mm -hmm. And so we did get a we got a grant through the National Park Service to be able to hire three employees, one for each of our units to really focus on developing digital platforms. Those employees actually started in March of 2020. (laughs) So serendipitous that we now had capacity to really start looking at developing digital platforms when COVID hit. So it was a really interesting time. Like we actually ramped up and got really busy. Mm -hmm. So we, we started ramping up in 2020, developing this digital content. So we started developing a digital app. We started developing content for our website and also stood up a social media team. So it was really interesting. It was a great, it was, you know, taking the lemonade, taking the lemons and making lemonade out of the situation and particularly with social media because so many people were using it to engage. We learned a lot of ways to share stories and it was just an opportunity to really experiment. How do we we engage with people across the country and across the world through these digital platforms? And we learned a tremendous amount just simply through our social Mm -hmm. media. And one example of that was, Uh, 2020 we were going to have uh, commemoration events at each one of our sites in person events for to mark the 75th anniversary of the atomic bombings of Japan. And we were originally planning these in person events, we realized pretty quickly by April of 2020, those were not going to happen. So then we started looking into using social media to mark these events, and we did a huge campaign on social media. We collaborated with the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum. They provided us artwork from atomic bomb survivors, and so we we posted we hosted that artwork for a month. So we had a, a virtual art showing, and that helped us really re, uh, mark these important these historic these important uh, um, historical milestones, and the artwork really resonated with people. our our visitors on social media. We had a lot of really good interaction. It was a very somber and quiet and reflective way of sharing this history and marking these historical events. So since then, um, social media has been a really important tool for us to share stories, all sorts of different stories about the Manhattan Project, And now we have this digital app. The National Park Service has an app. So if you go to your Google Play or the Apple Store, download the app. We have at each one of our sites, Hanford, Los Alamos, Oak Ridge. There's, for example, here at Hanford, there's about 40 sites that relate to the Manhattan Project history. So if you come into town, you're like, hey, I want to learn about the Manhattan Project. Because these communities, Richland was built to house the Manhattan Project workers. So that history is is here in our community. We walk by it every day and don't really notice it, but the app is that you can walk by and see the Richland Player Theater. You can click on it, learn more about oh, this was the movie theater during the Manhattan Project um, period and get a sense of what it was like to live in these secret communities and work on this project. and it was such an interesting time in our society working on such a a huge project, but it was all right. very secretive.
0: So I have a couple of questions um, that you should know the answers. I, I, I don't, You should know the answers to these. No, just kidding. Um, but why was the project named the Manhattan Project?
1: I, it was named the Manhattan Project because it, the project was managed by the Army Corps of Engineers of engineers. They established mm-hmm. the, and the very first project headquarters was in the Manhattan Engineering District in Manhattan, New York. So mm-hmm. to keep it kind of secret and a little vague that is named it after the location of the office. Eventually the project headquarters were moved to, Los, uh, to Oak Ridge, but mm-hmm. that's, that's why they just named it after that's where their Simon office Hammer. was, okay. yeah.
0: Good, so then as, as it pertains to Washington State, why Richland? Why mm-hmm. why? What did Richland have to offer the project that other? I mean, why here? I mean, it seems when you when you think about this, and, and maybe maybe it's secrecy, but when you think about you know Tennessee, New Mexico, Washington, very geographically re- isolated from each other, making transportation a little bit challenging, things like that. So why why Richland?
1: Well, that's a great question. So um, when they when the Army Corps of Engineers decided to pursue multiple routes of, of creating an atomic weapon. They originally started with enriching uranium, which was what they were doing at Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Then when they realized, well, let's pursue the route of, produ- of a, a producing plutonium to also create a plutonium weapon. And so they're like, well, we probably don't want to do both of these experimental sciences because this was all new technology. They were literally like coming up with the design while they're, you know, f- building and flying the airplane at the same time is what they were doing. Right. So they decided, well, let's not put both of these experimental technologies together in Oak Ridge, which is near, you know, nearby. There's a lot of population uh, nearby Oak Ridge, Tennessee. So let's find another place to produce plutonium. So, uh, General Leslie Grove sent uh, Colonel Matthias out to find a place for plutonium production. Had to be a place with lots of water, not a lot of people, but good rail transportation. So, he had the specific list. And so, Matthias went all around, and they didn't want it really on the West Coast because they felt that was too vulnerable to bombings from Japan. So, a place that was fur- further enough inland, but offered the specific criteria. When Matthias flew over Hanford, He knew he had found the right spot because there was the Columbia River that offered plenty of cool water needed to cool the production reactors. There was a lot of electricity available. The Grand Coulee Dam had been recently constructed, so all of that hydropower was needed to produce the electricity needed for the reactors. And it appeared there wasn't a lot of people in the area. This was an agricultural area, but they flew over in December, so orchards don't look like much in the winter, and so he's like, there's not a lot of people here. There were small towns of the town of Hanford, the town of White Bluffs. And Richland was a small farming hamlet. So he said, okay, not a lot of people. There was one highway, but it wasn't a major highway. And then Pasco had a really good rail hub. So there was a good trend. They, they had rail nearby. So all of those things like check, check, check. And that's how Hanford was selected.
0: Okay. So. Now you wouldn't select Hanford now because Tri Cities is just. I don't know that you'll know the answer to this question, but what's the approximate population there in Tri Cities now? It's
1: I think it's, it's roughly three hundred thousand.
0: Yeah, I mean it's
1: it's a good sized community. Yeah,
0: it's, it's a very good sized community. Yeah, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't uh, I don't think you would select it now. No. <laughs> okay, so in what year did they they break ground here at Hanford?
1: It was in uh, nineteen forty three. So they broke ground. So Matthias came out in December of 1942, and then Groves had approved the Hanford site in January of 43. And then they, they had to remove the communities so the the citizens, the people living in White Bluffs and Hanford uh, and Richland were um, through eminent domain, lost their farms. So it was the War Powers Act that gave mm-hmm. the military the ability to remove the farmers from their land. And also, tribal communities were removed. So here at Hanford, it was the, um, the tribal, uh, the Wanapum, that they, they had summer grounds on, on the Hanford site. What is the Hanford site today? They're, that was their mm-hmm. summer grounds. And then also the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla. Indian Reservation, the bands and tribes of the Yakima Indian Reservation, as well as the Nez Perce tribe, they all had treaty rights to what we call the Hanford site today from the treaties of 1855. That was their traditional and custom places. So they could go to that area for fishing, hunting, gathering. So when the government came in, they displaced the white settlers. They kicked them out of their farms. They gave them some compensation. Many argue it wasn't enough for all the effort and um, the, the money that went in to the farms and then tribes had also lost access to this land because when they put the fence up, everybody was excluded. So it, it um, tribal communities lost access to it and then the white settler communities were also displaced. So that's what happened in early 43 and then they started construction, I think, in spring of 43.
0: Wow. and that was so huge they moved, moved incredibly quickly so initially how many acres are we talking about
1: it's about 600 let me double check 600 square miles so it's a huge wow. site yeah
0: wow okay 600 square miles. okay so in a, in a very very brief period of time a decision was made people were relocated Six hundred square miles of fencing went up. Just think about think about that work work <laughs> order right there. Um and then they started construction that ultimately led to production uh within two years. I mean, that's just when you look at the timeline of when when the bombs were used, it was in 45. So that's less than two years. Now something something you said earlier though, this is so uh, this is this is the way my brain works. You mentioned when you go into Richland you can see buildings that were uh, you know, the theater, you mentioned the theater the, the, and, and you have a, a walking tour mm-hmm. in, in, in Richland and the app will show you things. So was anything there or were all those buildings that you kind of reference, like the theater, were those constructed within a two year window just to provide services for the people that were brought into, to run this, to, to participate in this project?
1: Yes. So um, it was actually less than a two year window. It was like a year window because they started construction in 1943. But then, by 1944, for example, Richland was transformed from a really small farming hamlet into a bustling community for Hanford workers. So there was two things going on here: they were building the community of Richland to house the white collar workers, so the more of the year round workers, the people who were going to be running the the site. And then Mm -hmm. they also had the Hanford construction camp, which was out on the Hanford site. And that housed, because they had to quickly recruit about 100,000 workers. And then nearly 50,000 workers lived in the Hanford construction camp. And that was the initial year to build the, the facilities. So they had these industrial facilities, they had the B reactor, which was the first full scale production nuclear reactor. And then they quickly followed with additional reactors, but they also had to construct fuel fabrication area. So they bring in the fuel by rail. They have to take the the fuel and create fuel slugs. So the uranium billets arrived and then they were processed and formed into these fuel slugs, which are about the size of two standard Snickers bars back to back. So, you know, you got your fuel slugs. They had to then truck the fuel slugs over to the reactors, put the uranium fuel slugs in the reactors. They radiated the fuel slugs in the reactor to get the plutonium. And then they had to take the irradiated uranium over to a separations plant to separate the uranium from the product of interest, which was plutonium. That plutonium was then shipped to Los Alamos. So they weren't only just building reactors. They were building the fuel fabrication, the separations area, the administrative headquarters. So all of that had to be constructed. So you had 50,000 people living in these construction camps, which also involved, you know, barracks and cafeterias. Imagine feeding 50,000 people every single day. <laughs> like, well,
0: <laughs> I have so many questions about this, which I won't, I'll get us bogged down in the minutiae, but I'll, I'll this. I'll just basically make my statement, and I won't ask you to 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 respond unless you've got something to you know say. No, you're wrong here. But so basically, what you're saying is that during the middle of a incredibly large and resource hungry war, we found another fifty to hundred thousand people and brought them to the desert in southeastern Washington, and we built barracks and cafeterias reactors and we did this all within a year
1: pretty much a year ish yeah
0: and what what gets me is where did we find these people because of the war effort that was going on which was significant um it's just fascinating to me that's just that's absolutely fascinating the other question i do have a very specific question you said something and this is the way my brain works you said the b reactor which was the first reactor made correct Mm -hmm, correct what happened to the A reactor?
1: <laughs> um, they didn't make one, and I'm not sure okay. what. There's a story, and I, I'm not exactly sure why they— Because
0: you understand. I mean, it's like—
1: A, B, C, D, yes. Yeah,
0: I'm like, <laughs> if we're going to call it B, why wasn't there A? So,
1: there was no A. Um, okay. So and so there was smaller reactors. So the the first reactor in the world was at the University of Chicago under a squash court which was like a tennis court, more or less. So at the University of Chicago, Enrico Fermi built his first graphite reactor. And that was proof of concept that he was able to um, create a sustained nuclear chain reaction, which then releases energy. The energy released powered a light bulb, but it was proof of concept. You could build this, this graphite pile, put uranium slugs in there, cause fission and, it release energy so from that then they build under a squash court under yeah safe place you know no no problems or anything i'm sure they would would not allow that today
0: yeah mm. and
1: then they scaled that concept up to the x10 reactor at oak ridge that was an air-cooled reactor but it was it was a test reactor they were able to produce some plutonium as well as other radionucleotides then they came to hanford and built the full-scale production but it basically went from like a little you know something small that you're doing in a lab to now it is an industrial complex and just the leap in that technology in that short amount of time is phenomenal and the big difference between Oak Ridge X-10 and Hanford's B reactors, Oak Ridge was air-cooled, this was water-cooled. So they really, it was similar to X-10, but pretty different. So literally they were building it and flying it at the same time. And, you you know, kind of touch on what you were talking about, the leap in technology. So fission wasn't discovered until December of 1938. So prior to 1938, they thought scientists thought the atom was not separable like it was solid when scientists in germany split the atom and figured out exactly what had happened that was a profound shift and immediately because this was the late 30s there was a lot of turmoil happening in europe at this time they understood the context for weapons right away for making atomic weapons and so that's when The uh, United States started looking, they started the Uranium Research Committee, FDR approved the scientists doing a little bit of research into uranium and fission and potentially weapons production. So, From 1938 of just discovering fission to making two operable atomic bombs that use two very different technologies is pretty profound. The other leap in technology is plutonium wasn't discovered until 1941 so uranium was a product of interest because it splits or it's thistle mm-hmm. and then when plutonium was discovered they also realized it was fissile it would split those two elements became of interest for weapons production but just the profound leap in in yeah. in, in knowledge is is amazing
0: well and uh, it- I'm not bright enough to be a scientific mind, but one can be in awe of the scientific advances in less than a decade, if you will. But the, what I am in awe of is the, the, the assembly and movement of human beings into facilities and how in Hanford, and I'm sure it happened in in Los Alamos. I'm sure it's happened other places, but we're we're talking about Hanford today that in a less than a year, Yes, it went from being a a sleepy farming hamlet to a secret community to, of a hundred some thousand people ultimately, and just the sheer will of human beings to 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 do that is is staggering to me.
1: It is that is a really good point. So not only the leaps in science, but the human uh, aspect of the story is pretty profound. And you touch on something really importantly. A, a able, most younger able-bodied men were off fighting the war. Right. So they were basically trying to recruit anybody who was like 35 and older because anybody under 35 was
0: would have been probably doing military service. Yeah, exactly.
1: So they DuPont was the main um, government contractor here. They heavily recruited from the South because these were good paying jobs and they recruited um, a lot of African-Americans and white workers as well. And about 14 percent. Of, of, the, of the workforce hired by DuPont was African-Americans. So they moved up here and also about 10% of the workforce were women. So this was a big shift of uh, bringing in African-Americans and women into the workforce. And that really changed the Pacific Northwest because they also hired white workers from the south. So with that migration of people from the south to the north, this was the Jim Crow era. They brought that Jim Crow cultural norm, if you if you want to call it that, with them. So Hanford was a segregated workplace. They didn't have Jim Crow laws here, but they had a, a similar system of segregation to what oh, the Jim was- Crow laws were in the South. So with a huge influx of workers, when we talk about these barracks and cafeterias, those were all segregated. You had the women's dorms, you had the African-American dorms, you had um, the, uh, African, the dorms were male African-Americans and male white workers and women's dorms were also segregated. And even some African-American couples, husband and wives, they had to live. The men lived in the men's dorms, the women's lived in the women's dorms. So they were even separating married couples. So highly segregated off by gender and by race, and then not not everybody could live out at the construction camp. There was too many people. So some people were also housed. Uh, we had the white collar workers housed in Richland. And then mm-hmm. the African-American workers were housed in East Pasco. In substandard living conditions, the housing wasn't great. There was no sewer or, or any uh, community services like that. So really the disparity that you see with the community of Richland that was government built, there were like the theater we were talking about, there was department stores. It was a very walkable. It was a very well intentionally built community had to be Mm -hmm. walkable because not everybody had cars. And if women were at home, they needed to be able to walk downtown and get what they needed. Uh, They needed to be able to walk to the laundry and to the department store and things like that. And they also built in these green spaces. So Richland today has really nice parks spread throughout and it was like a spoke, so you had downtown Richland and the spokes went out from there to the communities. So you'll see the Alphabet homes, which Richland is really known for in downtown Richland. And this area, it's easy to get to the Parkway area, which is kind of downtown Richland near Howard Ammon Park, all these communities. You could easily walk the downtown Richland, so it's fascinating when you start looking at the social context and comparing that to what the community like looked like in East Pasco and the services there, but also the rich and robust communities that did grow from both. Uh, the African American community in East Pasco was very vibrant. They had churches. Uh, the Morning Star Baptist Church was the center of this community, and they were they were really dedicated to their work. It was a patriotic duty for everybody. They were helping the war effort, and they mm-hmm. did not know what they were doing. Most of the workers had no idea. They just knew it was the war effort. It was a good paying job, especially coming out of the depression. And they and you're also talking about you know war rationing. These workers ate well. If you're at the Hanford Construction right. Camp, there was they they wanted to keep you here because they needed the labor. So right. if you if you wanted eggs and bacon for breakfast, you are gonna get eggs and bacon for breakfast.
0: You got eggs and bacon <laughs> for breakfast versus you know yeah the, I know my my mother was a a young child during during this period of time and um, she's in the this was in Tacoma, and so she's you know you know my when my grandparents were alive they would talk about you know, the like the blackout curtains and um and and rationing and coupon books and, and everybody doing their part. And so I think I think that information that I have coupled with just the volume of people that you're 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 saying were brought to the region to, to do I'm I'm still it's not that I don't believe you. I don't mean like that, but it's like it's unbelievable in the sense that here we are full-on war, full-on, Boeing was building airplanes, they were recruiting women to be riveters. I mean, there was, everybody was doing their part. It seemed like, and I wasn't alive then, but if you read about it, everybody was doing their part. And yet somehow, mysteriously, we found another 50 to 100,000 people that were sitting around and moved (laughs) moved them to Richland to build this thing. And I know they weren't sitting around, but you know, it just seems like, wow, what a concentrated effort of monumental uh, impact.
1: It was, and so, and Hanford, we also had a similar thing going on at Oak Ridge. So to think like we're pulling this many people up to the Pacific Northwest to work here. And it right. was a high turnover. The, imagine if you're, you know, some people, a lot of people think of Washington as cool, lots of trees, lots of water. They show up in Pasco
0: because right. most people came
1: in on the rail and they're like, oh, uh, did I get on the wrong? Where, you yep. know where am I at? And so this was a hard place to live. It's hot, it's cold, it's dusty, it's windy. you know we we get these spring winds and they they were called termination winds because it would be really dusty and people were like no, I'm out of here i'm I'm going back to wherever I came from. I wake up, my house is covered in dust. I'm done. Like Uh this is not where I want to live. So Uh uh, there was just a huge turnover of people. So there were, there were still people available to work, but you're right. I mean, but everybody was, was dedicated to helping the war effort.
0: Right. No. So, so one of the reasons that we were connected was because there's a movie coming out that has a, very good very close ties to what what happened there at Hanford yes what what if any involvement with that movie project have you had have you had any other than you just happen to be the uh, the park ranger of of this park that's being referenced uh or
1: uh pretty much i just happen to be the park ranger uh okay so we're super excited about the film oppenheimer coming out i think it's going to premiere on the july 21st and all the filming was done in or the majority of the filming was done in Los Alamos. So Oppenheimer was the um, the scientific director for the Los Alamos uh, site for Los Alamos during the Manhattan Project and he is a very well-known controversial figure so it'll be really interesting to see how he's portrayed in the film. Apparently, Mm -hmm. the director referenced the book, The American Prometheus, which uh, it's a great book, and it really provides a very complex and nuanced understanding of who Oppenheimer was. So I'm really, really looking forward to seeing the movie and seeing how Oppenheimer is portrayed. Um, So with the focus on Oppenheimer, the filming was done in Los Alamos on the app that I referenced earlier. We do have a driving tour of the several of the sites that were filming locations in Los Alamos, like the Lamy train station, which was Mm -hmm. the primary place uh, people came into the site or it came to Los Alamos and then also like the Fuller Lodge and then the Oppenheimer house in Los Alamos. So it's kind of fun. You can get a sense of where the film, the different filming locations on the driving tour on the app. We also have on our website like a 360 panorama of the Oppenheimer House. It's not open to the public, but you get a sense of um, where this man lived and his family lived during the Manhattan Project. Uh, So we're excited, and it's also putting a spotlight on this really important history that the park works to share.
0: Well, and I was, while you were saying that, I was over here, I I found the Oppenheimer movie website, which is... Have you, you've obviously probably seen the, the website mm-hmm. um, pretty distracting to when you, when it, 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 it you know um, but Matt Damon and Robert Downey Jr. are in this uh, Florence Pugh is a name I'm aware of Emily Blunt, but Cillian Murphy is not a name I'm familiar with, but that's the first name listed. So um, this was, this is not just some independent film, uh, some little, you know, uh, somebody running around with their. Their iPhone, no offense to iPhone films, but uh running around with their iPhone and just gathering things. This is this is a full this is Hollywood, yes. massive Hollywood production. Um and from the looks of the website, they dropped a few dollars on that too. <laughs> yes. So yeah. is so this is so the, the byproduct of the movie though will be is increased attention and awareness of what what you're what you're working on and the other the other sites and all that. So why don't we Now you've got an app and so this is weird to me so when i think of a park as a national park or a state park or a park i think of those as places to go and experience in person and so far you've talked about you know using technology which is awesome but it's just different than what i would expect so first off i think it's great that somebody sitting in say you know savannah georgia can be looking around at what what's going on in, in, using the app, but what's going on in your facility? That's that's really cool. But what does the Hanford site offer in person these days? Because I think when we when we um, when we talk, you know, pre pre recording and all that, I, I told you my little my little story about. Taking a joyride, if you will, out towards the facility, and being, you know, being very, very uh, politely yet assertively told, um, "You're not welcome here." Um, very professionally, very kind. They were all very nice, but it was, it was really obvious that um, they took a random vehicle just driving down this highway um, as something to be dealt with. So, first off, where physically is the park at in Richland?
1: Well, that's a great question. So, the visitor center, which is the place to start your experience here at Hanford, that is in Richland. It is at 2000 Logsdon Boulevard. Um, It's in North Richland. So, that's a place to come in, get started. You'll talk to some great folks. You can stamp your passport. So, if anybody is a National Park Service um, passport fan, we we have the, the Manhattan Project stamp here.
0: So I have to interrupt you, though. But based on your earlier conversation, if they talk to you, they might be recruited.
1: <laughs> yep, watch out.
0: <laughs> so, so somebody can come. So you have. So they can be. They they can get the passport stamped. Awesome. So they can start there. All right. Yes. Okay. So because oh, go ahead. And I'm bouncing around a little bit. Is am I correct? You, it, we were under the assumption, and I think recently we found out that this is no longer allowed. There are no longer tours allowed at Hanford. Is that, is that accurate?
1: Uh, No, we, we are offering tours. So they were closed during COVID
0: for COVID
1: stuff. And then uh, they were partially open last year. And now this year it's a full tour season. So the, Um, So you come to the, you you come here, you visit, come to the visitor center, get your passport Mm -hmm. stamp. This is also where you would take off for the B Reactor tour. So the Department of Energy offers two tours. Um, One is the B Reactor, and the other one is the pre-Manhattan Project tour. So I'll talk about a little, both of those a little bit more in a second. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, we're, it's really great that this year we're finally kind of post-COVID and it's a full tour season. Tour, st- tour started in March and they'll go through uh, early November.
0: Oh, okay. That's great.
1: And uh, reservations are needed for both of these tours, which you could just Google search "B Reactor Tours. Uh, it's probably the easiest way to find it or I can send you the link to it.
0: We'll put them in the show notes for people. Okay.
1: Yes. So, and so the B reactor tours, they are four hours long. They're offered six days a week. And uh, you get to go out to the first full scale production nuclear reactor. and and so it's a really nice tour and it leans into the science. Like we were talking about, like they were discovering the science while they're building these reactors and they're refining it. So it's a great place. It's a real marvel to understand like the scientific complexities of the Manhattan Project. So it's a great tour. You learn more about the science behind the, the Manhattan Project and what made plutonium production possible. So those okay. are the B reactor tours. And then the Department of Energy also offers pre-Manhattan Project tours. So that history that we briefly touched on with the the settlers that were removed when the Manhattan Project showed up, that really digs into a little bit more of what the community of Hanford and White Bluffs, who were those folks? You get to visit some buildings that were here before the manhattan project like we have the broggerman's ranch we have the white bluffs bank and the hanford high school so it's really neat i really like the pre-manhattan project tours because you get to see more of the site and a, a greater sense of how big it is remember we said 600 square miles that's crazy it's, it's huge and if some of the tour goes along the river so there's opportunities to see some wildlife and just learn about the people who are eking out a living we're joking like it's a desert but they were growing. I mean, the rich agriculture we have in the, in the area today started from these settlers building irrigation, um, you know, putting in the irrigation infrastructure and building these farms. So it was a tremendous mm-hmm. amount of work to, to make this productive soil. But once you put water on the soil, you had, it was a great place for, for growing crops. Oh, it,
0: it, it, the whole damming of the Columbia profoundly changed the, the whole region um of central washington uh from being you know desert Mm. or very unhospitable to well still there's still i mean let's be honest the
1: winds
0: (laughs) the winds during spring are they're not fun we can't we can't get around that but it's the fact that i you know one question i didn't ask you and if you know the answer that's awesome but it'd be really interesting to know what the population of the region was pre-hanford to the 300 and some thousand that they're there today i'm going to guess
1: several uh, hundred like the city of yeah. richland the hamlet of richland was less than 100 people White yeah, exactly are, so it was tiny. it went
0: from basically a you know a a, a a you know I'll jokingly say you know a stop sign in a gas station to you know now three hundred thousand people in the region it was more than that there i know but you know it, it's just the river mm-hmm. the columbia river has impacted in such so many ways the the region, um, irrigation, power, all of all of the above. Question: I, Just because you brought it up again, um, six hundred square miles. So, approximate. Can you give me kind of like where? Because like when I drive, and I can never think of the highway that goes along out of Richland and heading up to Vantage mm-hmm. uh, that goes along the Columbia. What, what it, it, it's not eighty four, uh, two forty. 240. A lot of fencing there that says, you know, <laughs> no entrance. A lot of a lot of that. And a few a couple of gates with uh, with uh, um you know, people present that are there to inspect vehicles and and, and d- dissuade you from going across any further. And it all looks like, you know, all looks like arid. But how far north does the Hanford parcel go?
1: That's a really good question because part of that six hundred thousand or six hundred square miles includes a buffer zone. So part, so which is now the Hanford Reach National Monument. Which um, so when you're driving on two hundred and forty, you see the gated off part, and then the other part is the National Monument. So. to tell you off the top of my head, that would be really hard to like exactly huh. say, well, Saddle Mountains is the, the ending line of that. So they put this huge buffer corridor because of this, what they were doing out there. They wanted to ensure sure. that no one would have access or be injured in case something did go wrong. Right. Um, so if you look at Hanford Reach National Monument, that was originally part of the Hanford site. But then because there was never any production activities that happened in that right. area. In 2000, President Clinton signed that, made that a national monument. It's still it's co-managed between the Department of Energy and the um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So, as you're driving by the Hanford site, you're looking at both of those things look like, to get together okay. to get okay. to the original area that was blocked off for okay. plutonium production. All
0: right. So. You, so you've corrected me. There are tours still. That's, that's, that's fascinating. People can get their passport stamped, which, is, you know, people are, we all like to complete things, but I like, you know, we all chase those things. <laughs> that's very cool. What else is happening out there that the public might be like surprised to hear? Like, Oh, I can go see or learn about X or Y. What, what else is going on there?
1: Yeah, so we we have those two great tours offered by the Department of Energy, and then the National Park Service, we're offering, we're trying this year, um, a new program, it's called Not So Secret City, so talking about Richland, so Richland was an open community, there were no guards, there was no fences, unlike Los Alamos and Oak Ridge, even if you lived in, like if you're a little boy and your dad worked in the project, the kids had badges and they had to have their badges to go home to just get onto the site at Los Alamos and Oak Ridge. So those were truly secret cities. There were fences, badges, guards, all of that. Richland wasn't like that. Anybody could drive through the city, but really the only people who had any business in the city were Manhattan project workers. And nobody would talk about what they did because you would, you, that was not, allowed at all so the the community was very it's considered secret because nobody talked about what they anybody that worked on hanford say could not talk, could not do that could not tell anybody what their job was
0: um i just think it's funny there's like 50 people there who are going <laughs> you're all looking around going we all know what we're doing but we're not going to say anything so it's like
1: yeah and they really, I don't know Sorry. and <laughs> they also had no idea what they were contributing to they just knew, right, like, I had a know, job.
0: Just, All right, cool. So, so, uh, so, Becky, what do you do? Um, you know, um, what do you do, Scott? <laughs> just kind of like, okay, just a, a town full of people who can't talk about what they do. Um, then, that's interesting to me.
1: Yeah, and to think about trying to do that in the context of today with social media, oh. everybody would be like doing their selfies, yeah. like, look at me, hey, look
0: at me at the B reactor, folks.
1: <laughs> They're like, no, 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 you can't do that. Um, So on the first Wednesday of each month, uh, so we have two more left, July and August, we are offering a not-so-secret city tour, and it's uh, through downtown Richland, and really kind of bringing that history that's embedded in these buildings to life, Um, and so giving a better sense of, like, what was it like to live in this? Kind of like what you were saying, like, oh, we can't talk about our jobs but it was also building that sense of community because people have got dumped off in the middle of the desert. Um, they're trying to make, you know, contributed to the war effort, but build community as well. Because a lot of them are young people, just like college graduates or with young families and trying to like build the sense of community. And the government was very interested in, in keeping these people happy. So let's have a theater, let's have uh, a community organization. And so like, um there was the allied uh, the allied arts what came out of like it was an art group that formed and so um, and making the library so it's fun to kind of walk around downtown Richland and things that we just take for granted today are like oh this grew out of the Manhattan project so that's what those not so secret city tours focus on is giving the context of okay you're a 10 year old kid you're living in Richland what what was that like? Or you're right. a young mom just moved here. Your husband's out working on the site, and you're trying to make a life in this community where you know nobody, and it's really hot and it's windy. Um,
0: <laughs> we moved here. Why? I can't tell you why. <laughs> well, why do we move here? I can't tell you. Uh, just, you know, just, <laughs> just can you see the the conversations around the dinner table? You know, just be really awkward.
1: Yeah. Like, what'd you do today at, at work today, Dad? Nothing. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Can't tell you. Yeah. Um, Dad. Yeah. Anyway. Right. Yeah, okay. So. So. So that's all right. So those are things that you're doing. So we're gonna put some links in the show notes to that, so people can can take a look at this. I I want to come down there and take. You know, I want to I want to take this in. This is kind of, you, i'm you know the you bemused me with certain aspects of it. <laughs> you know, which is not something to to you know. But there's certain things about it. But so I'd like to we're gonna. It, I'll come, I'll I'll give you a last word. So, but, so when you're not being a park ranger Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and you were dropped off in in (laughs) Tri-Cities, it's still windy, it's still hot, it's still (laughs) cold. It's just more things to do. But what do you like to do? What do you like about living in the Tri-Cities area?
1: What I really like about it. Well, I'm, I'm from the desert. You know, I grew up playing with the rattlesnakes and stuff. So I do like the hot and sun Um, and it's not as high. It's not Arizona hot in the tri city. So it's warm but I've lived in hotter places. Uh, So I do love the sunshine here. Uh, We have, I love riding my bike, whether it's a mountain bike or a road bike. So I really enjoy getting out and um, riding my bike, going hiking with friends because within two two hours, we can be in in the Cascades or the Blue Mountains enjoying the wonderful mountains of Washington and the outdoors. So there's just tons of outdoor things to do in Washington state. And so I enjoy taking advantage of those, whether it's hiking, backpacking, or skiing in the winter okay. time.
0: What haven't you tried that you th- that's kind of on the list of things that, you know, the quintessential Washington state experience, is there something you, you want to try that you haven't tried yet?
1: Oh, uh, yes, there's a few things on my bucket list and I'm trying to think of what they are off the top of my head. Um, I have gone to North Cascades National Park I want to spend okay. more time there, but that was definitely something I wanted to do. I'd like to spend more time over in the Seattle area exploring and I've only had the opportunity to go over there a couple of times, but I've definitely been on the, to the Space Needle. Um, I, I want to get up towards Grand Coulee and explore that area a little bit more, especially with the Grand Coulee Dam connection to the history down here. Mm-hmm. And well, I I feel like I've really taken advantage of the quintessential um bike ride of the Pacific Northwest was see C- the STP Seattle to Portland ride. So I did right. that my first year here. So I'm like, hey, check. Did you
0: complete it in one day or two?
1: One day. 206 right. miles in like, I don't know, four, 14 hours. And I'm like, okay, I'm done with my bike for a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was really fun. I I really I really enjoy the Pacific Northwest, especially having gone to grad school up here. Um, but yeah, definitely there's more places I want to explore, particularly over in the Seattle area.
0: Okay. So, one question I ask all my guests. So, there's a bunch of questions, not a bunch, but there's a few questions I always ask. So, coffee, I don't remember your answer to this. Tea. I think. Based on the look on your face, you're going to disappoint me greatly.
1: <laughs> that is one thing I have also enjoyed of moving to the Pacific Northwest. I enjoy tea. I'm not much of a coffee drinker, but i've I've learned Lon- I did not know what a London fog was until I moved here, and somebody in a coffee shop said y- you should try a London fog, and I really enjoy those. So
0: okay. So my 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 awareness of tea is that it's it says Lipton on it. <laughs> it. You know, it just it's. I for the for the sake of the show i'll make fun of tea um but that if i'm being honest it's more out of lack of exposure to the product than it is i don't dislike tea i just i just like coffee i like coffee a lot um but tea so where does one go for a good london fog in the tri-cities
1: oh the, any of the coffee shops actually so the, i mean uh, what I, what's really fun and up here, there's a coffee shop on every corner. Uh, so, <laughs> so just, in, I really enjoy the, the coffee shop culture here, but they, they mm-hmm. cater to both coffee and tea drinkers. So so
0: where's a coffee shop that you like? So where's the place that you and I could go for quote unquote coffee. You'll have a London fog. I'll have coffee. Where's a good place that we could go and sit down and have a, a you know, have a conversation.
1: Well, as a government employee, I can't enter in, um,
0: I'm not asking an endorsement. I'm just saying
1: (laughs) there's a couple of them nearby my office.
0: There's a couple nearby your office.
1: Yeah. There's a, there's a couple of really good coffee shops
0: in secret Richland where we can't talk about.
1: (laughs) So I I don't want to endorse any particular um, business, but there's some really great ones within like three to five miles of, of of my office, which is great. Okay. So if you do come over, I can take you out for a cup of coffee. Mm
0: -hmm. So this next question may also fall into the, you can't endorse, but so I'm going to, Uh, modify it some so i think you can answer this i always ask where's a good place to go for lunch so that's probably once again you're gonna say i'm sorry as a government play i can't answer that so where what is a good type of food to have for lunch what have you found in in the tri-cities have you found you know
1: Mm
0: -hmm. uh, yes what have you found uh
1: there's actually a really good pizza spot uh pretty close to my office as well they have great pizza so uh, after a long day at work, it's like, ooh, I can just go get some pizza and not have to worry about dinner. And okay. um, just a variety of food. There's a really good Thai restaurant. There's some good just American food, like hamburgers and stuff like that. My husband's a picky eater. He's kind of a carnivore. So um, if it doesn't have a hamburger on the menu, he's not going to go out to dinner with me.
0: <laughs> so you're really going to have a hard time taking him to a Thai place. That's just gonna be kind of a yeah I can, I can
1: you know. convince him there's chicken he's like okay but uh, but when I go out with my girlfriends I'm like okay let's anywhere that doesn't you know kind of hit the anywhere others. that
0: doesn't have a burger on the menu is <laughs> where you want to go okay yeah all right So let's let's we'll wrap it up with this question this is my get out oh, actually there's a second a follow a second question but this is this is where you get input. So what didn't I ask you that I should have asked you during our conversation?
1: Well, I would encourage folks because the Manhattan Project story is so complex. We've talked, been chatting for a little more than an hour now and we've just hitting the highlights of it. Right. And especially as folks have the opportunity to watch the film that's coming out in July, just to follow us on social media or on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We share all sorts of stories there because that is one of our great ways of communicating with folks who may not have an opportunity to come out and visit. We definitely encourage you to come and visit And uh, you go on some of the ranger programs because we we mentioned the not so secret city tour, but we also offer like pop up play days and junior ranger park explorers so if you have littles in your group and you're like I don't know if they can handle a four hour tour. uh, There's lots of ranger programs that are very family friendly we offer hikes local hikes and bike rides so uh, if you follow us on social media you'll find out about those events. Go to our website. There's a lot of great information that digs a little bit more in depth on these topics that we lightly touched on today. And then also download the National Park Service app, type in Manhattan Project National Historical Park, and you can learn about Hanford, Los Alamos, Oak Ridge, and how all three of those sites work together. And then definitely encourage folks to come out. And if they get a chance to visit the Tri-Cities, go on a bee reactor tour or a pre-Manhattan project tour, spend the afternoon. You can do a tour in the morning and spend the afternoon as a self-directed tour using the app. And then in the afternoon or the next day, enjoy it. We have a lot of great wineries in the area and we have great rivers. So there's paddle boarding and fishing here. So it's easy to put together a a nice day here in the Tri Cities. Enjoy the warmth and the sunshine, the rivers, the wine, and the history.
0: Okay, now I'm going to ask this question of you. Uh-huh. This is your answer. It has no reflection on your employer, but I need a very I need an answer to this question. This is not an endorsement. This is your opinion. All right. Okay. Cake or pie, and why? Oh,
1: I would have well my favorite is tres leches cake so I guess cake but I happen because I really like tres leches cake but I also really like like cherry pie
0: (laughs) okay why what is it about it that you like
1: uh well the tres leches has good memories a very good friend of mine uh from Guatemala was the first one who introduced me to tres leches and um just brings back more more memories with her, but also the flavor is pretty awesome. And then cherry pie is just good; tastes good.
0: <laughs> okay, Becky, thank you for taking the time to just honestly give us a super high overview of the of the whole thing. We we didn't go deep; we couldn't go deep. It would we? It would just be overwhelming. Yes, uh, but. A, I didn't know there, you know, until a month ago. I didn't know about this existed here. Um, and B, it's it's. I find it fascinating, and I had no idea and just what you shared today about the the rapid growth. I mean, when you when you look at the timeline from when the site was selected to when the site broke ground to when they brought in all these folks and they built all these things, it's it's overwhelming to me to think how that was accomplished in the in the 1940s
1: it, it is yeah. profound and and this history impacts all of us today the right. success of the manhattan Absolutely. project dawned the nuclear age we all live in a nuclear world because right. of the manhattan project and so um, you know, your listeners, hopefully they're inspired to learn more and the folks that see the movie and like, Oh, I want to go and learn more. Cause it's, it could be something that happened a long, long time ago, but when you realize like, this is relevant, this, this, you know, we have oh, it is,
0: it's incredibly relevant, you know, it's, in, it's incredibly relevant. The, Absolutely, The
1: outgrowth of just thinking about like nuclear power or our nuclear medicine, or atomic or nuclear weapons, those all can- the genesis is, is this story. So it's, it's, it's overwhelming, like you said, but baby steps, take the you know bite-sized chunks. That's what's nice about social media is you get these bite-sized stories. Or going on a tour, you get to learn a little bit more, but it's still pretty high level. And there's so much more to inspire your curiosity and learn more.
0: Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, share the story with us.
1: Well, I really appreciate your uh, time today and opportunity to talk about the Manhattan Project National Historical Park.
0: Hope you enjoyed the show. You can reach me on Twitter at ExploreWaState. I'd love to hear your comments. You can also visit our website at ExploreWashingtonState.com. If you know anyone who'd like the show, it'd be amazing if you'd share the show with them. This is the biggest way that we grow this show good old word of mouth. Glad you were here with me today, and I hope to have you listening to the next episode. See you then.